So welcome back to my block, our little video podcast where we give you everything real estate uh, unfiltered. I'm here with Anthony Loria, top producer on? for the second year at the Riley Smith Group, my buddy, my partner in crime. What's going on, dude? Not much. How you been? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Um, so sorry about the Finns loss. I know. Brutal. Oh, God. Man, if we had to uh, we make a little bit different with the play calls, a little bit better clock management, you never know what's going to happen. You never know. But yeah. you know what? They gave us a hell of a year. Yeah, it was a fun so, game. It was a fun game even at the end. So we're going to get right to it because we want to make these things a little bit short so they're like easier to take down. So we've got a small little run down here, and we're going to try to s slide right through it and see if we can get this thing done within 30 minutes. We want to do these at least uh, every other week if we can. So uh, news uh, hit the wire yesterday that Compass as a brokerage is number one in Miami-Dade County, Broward County, and Palm Beach. I love it. I love it. And you know what? It speaks so uh, well against the national narrative. Everybody's down on Compass. Everybody's saying, oh, we're, we're firing people. But, you know, the driving engine behind it is always going to be the agents, right? And it just shows that we've commanded a huge market share in three of the biggest markets in America. There's a couple of different things that stand out to me with this is the vision of the agents before us who basically were coming from, you know, pretty respectable brokerages who took a leap of faith in a culture, in a in a, a tech platform that wasn't even mastered yet. And they they basically created this. So I give credit to all the founding members of Compass. I think that their belief in what this was going to be is the first thing. And it's something that we always talk about. There's like a Kool-Aid that comes with joining Compass and and at first you're always like, I don't know, I don't know. And then you get here and you realize, man, it's something special. It's something, a really cool atmosphere. Um, they, they respect who you are as an agent. And I think that's extremely important. They've embraced the Riley Smith Group and we're not for everybody. Um, so I think that just speaks to the market share that we've gained over the years. I agree. And then like the whole collaborate without ego, that is like, for me, the one thing that stands out in terms of like those principles of entrepreneurship here, everyone is willing to share you know, what their playbook was, how they got to success, and that, I think that's also why the referral network here is so strong. And that, that's been one of the biggest surprises, actually, from being here, is you hit it right on the head, is the referral network, the tight-knit group of Compass agents, just not RSG, not just Compass Florida, but Compass Nationwide. And I think that speaks, it starts at the top, you know? Um, so I really am appreciative to be here, and I, I know that you, you, you can say the same. Oh, yeah, no, I love it here, and I'll say this last thing. For every single brokerage that's not Compass who's talking about our layoffs or where we're headed as a company, what does it say about your brokerage when everyone is leaving your brokerage to come here? So 100%. I would stop using that because it's embarrassing. Because there's people are still leaving your brokerage to come here even with all these layoffs and all this like turmoil that we're having in the, the CEO office. Like that doesn't have anything to do with the culture that they're building and the the support that they're building for their agents. And I think that's extremely important. Agreed. So um, I, I do believe, and I tell this to everyone that I speak to, and it's not me trying to poach or bring other people in here. I believe that Compass has more to offer than any other brokerage. It's only a matter of time before there's only like a handful of brokerages and all the people that we know and all the other companies are here. Everyone's going to be here. I agree. Listen, this is the, the end destination unless there's some major changes at other brokerages and they, they, they kind of change their whole platform. Um, but this is the place to be right now in 2023. Um, and I think it's only going to keep growing. You know, even with the slashes, even with the downfall of the stock and everything, I think that the it's going in the right direction. And it's really agent focused. And I think that will always be the driving force behind Compass. Yeah, it feels like with the platform and the culture, we're fishing with dynamite. It certainly does. So Compass number one brokerage, Palm Beach, Dade County, Broward County, and then uh, the real deal release, top teams in Miami, Riley Smith Group was number nine. 
Um, pretty impressive. There was some number fudging there. We I should know. have been a little bit higher, but very proud to be in the top 10. 100%. There was a couple things that stood out to me. Number one was, I think, I got to tip my hat to the Jill Zeter group because... They're a machine. I mean, whatever you might think about what their path was to where they are and some of that turmoil they went through, their numbers are super impressive because it's not just the amount of volume, it's the amount of transactions. Yeah. And, and and think about their transactions at the, the the average sale price that they're doing. Oh yeah, you know it, it's it's six and seven digits, so it's like very very impressive. So I broke it down. So you got people like Oren and Lourdes de la Triste who did such a lot more fewer transactions with a, a decent amount of volume, where their average transaction was about ten million. Yep. The Joe Zeter group had an average transaction of six million <laughs> with two hundred deals. Right, but that's, that's the difference. Though. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can deals. sell less uh, less amount of deals at higher po- price point, but not even come close to getting you know to the I think it was one point two this year, yeah. and it was two over two last year. So like to go back to back with you know in the, something that you're starting with a billion, you know, like I mean that's super impressive. And my hats off to them for hundred percent. Yeah, uh, they're also good compass representation there. I don't have the list in front of me, but. Um, you know, good job from our team. Uh, props to Riley. He's really created, you know, a super dynamic team, and we're only getting started. This whole Compass thing for us is going to change the game. 100%. But at the end of the day, listen, we're top 10. We're a growing name. We're a name that's been um, consistent throughout the years. So I really think that's something that's going to show you that the Riley Smith Group is something with Compass is a force to be reckoned with. For sure. So with that being said... I'm going to jump into the market and we'll do a little breakdown and I want to get your thoughts. But first, I want to see if you had were able finally to see. I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, but whoever didn't see it, Robert Refkin was on CNBC and he had about a two minute. I mean, the interview was longer, but there was a two minute clip where he started talking about his expectations are that if we have been in a housing recession through this time, that we're reaching the bottom. So it was his belief. And I tend to agree with him is this might be marketplace for buyers for quite some time because as soon as those rates go down prices are you know i guess the rates are going to go down prices are going to go up but we're going to have a uh, a crowded marketplace again so we've actually been talking about this i think the last couple of times you know the the rising interest rates have have shallowed our buyer pool but you know the the converse happens uh, when the, they go back down and the more competition that comes is going to be harder for a buyer so like the last like I would say like eight months or so has actually been a really good time to be a buyer. And if you had the means to purchase a place, you're not competing with 10 and 12 different offers. You're not competing uh, saying, oh, I don't want inspections. I don't need this. You're getting seller concessions now. And I think that's something that Robert was talking about. 42% of the deals right now is that has seller concessions. And that hasn't been seen in 10 years since the housing crisis in in 2008. So I think it's really important if you're on the buyer side, um, it's a – if you have the means, I always say that because I think that's really important. If you have the means, it's still a really good time to buy. I agree. And then I, I think we also have to talk to our customers regarding pricing because in November, in October, November, prices were up 17% and 20% versus the same time last year. That was a record year. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have as many sales, but prices were up. Redfin reported that December sales were up in Miami 9%. So that's still a, you know a gradual push up in price, and then I saw this. This is um, a developer friend of mine sent this to me. The sources are Zillow, Goldman Sachs, 
Um, I read this article the other day. Yeah. It's great. The graph is amazing. So yep. it shows you know, what they expect 2023 home prices declined to materialize in the Western United States. It has basically all the top 10 markets. More than that. It's like 20 markets here. Austin, San Francisco, San Diego, you name it. And every single one has, a, I mean, depending on where you are, some sort of decline in home prices. Yep. But Miami is the only one out of all these markets that's up around the 3 to 5% that is a natural appreciation that we've been talking about. And that's amazing. And that just shows you the strength of the Miami market, it also shows how really undervalued we were. Okay, so we're always going to go back to 2018, COVID comes, everybody moves to Miami, everybody's like, oh my God, such low price per square foot. Now we're here three years later, rates go up, buyers go down, but the inventory uh, hasn't grown as much as they've wanted. So it's still creating a lot of demand and keeping prices high. So I agree with Goldman Sachs and I agree with Zillow that this is going to show that I think it's about 1% to 2% average growth in Miami. And, and I think that shows such strength in this place and, and, and this market. And it's, it's, it's really cool to see. Yeah, I mean, even if there is a decline, I was listening to uh, Keeping Current Matters. It, it, across the country for this year, it could be like a 4% dip. Like yep. we're talking... You know, it, it shouldn't stop you from buying a house if your goal is to own a home because sure. the adverse effect is the prices start to go up if there is another migration to Miami, which I think there will be because a lot of people left empty-handed through the last cycle. I don't think it's going to be quite like it was right after COVID, but man, there's still 700 people moving to South Florida every single day. Listen, I still feel it in my business. I feel I, I represent a lot of people that are out of state that are moving here from New York and Chicago, San Francisco, LA, San Diego. I'm telling you right now, there's still a desire to be here. And like you said, the people that missed out on the last cycle, they're still hungry to get here. And obviously, you know, these now these cycles are going to be lined with school years and everything and getting into schools. Um, so that's going to have something to do with it. But at the end of the day, we're still seeing a high demand. Yeah. And I, and I will tell you, because the Miami Herald also did a report. They interviewed a bunch of economists and people who are predicting what's going to be happening in Miami. And one guy, his name is Jack McCabe. He was interviewed just talking about what he expects. And right here, he says that, unfortunately, we're not going to see the rental side price decrease, which would help the workers here. And the buyer side, we should see prices holding steady. Yeah. So if they hold steady... If, if you look at it right now, it costs you the same amount of money to rent as it does to buy minus the down payment. Sure. So I don't know what these renters are doing holding off because I know a lot of people, doctors, lawyers, who are first-time home buyers, sure. who make a shitload of money and have money in the bank, and they're terrified because of the news. And it's our job as agents to say, hey, look, you're going to be – I mean, your rent is always going to be 100% interest. Yep. Always. 100%. So, if you just start with that and say, okay, well, if I'm going to hold three to five years, I'm probably going to do okay. And some of these people, they might be able to keep that property, rent it, and buy another one. Yeah. So I think, you know, renting when you have the means to buy is always a bad mistake. You know, it's something that I think a lot of people like, oh, we're always going to wait for the dip. We're going to wait for the dip. Okay, it's not coming. It's pissing away money, man. Oh, 100%. And so when you're renting at these rates, when you can be owning at these rates – it says a lot about the inventory, though, right? Because it, these people are scared. They're like, oh, I don't want to spend all this money on a house that I really don't want to be in. So that goes back to supply and demand. The buyer market and the buyer um, inventory is such so low right now that I think that um, it's stopping these really good buyers in the market to stay renting. Do I agree with it? No. But – if we see one thing that I've noticed over the last eight or nine months is that if something good comes on the market and it's properly priced, it's gone in like two minutes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I see that too. I totally get it. My thing is just because I think 
I mean, I, I'm okay being wrong. I'm not one that's supposed to be wrong, but I did a little analysis of what was happening in San Francisco during the Silicon Valley boom, and that was the biggest metropolitan city versus what was you know going on in Silicon sure. Valley, and the prices got to levels that no one could have ever imagined. So what if we're on that same trajectory? Because McCabe says in his report with the Miami Herald that it's going to be difficult to attract workers, and, and people are going to be traveling from 90 minutes away to get here because they can't afford in Miami proper. So... I'm honestly building a referral network of agents in other states of Florida because I think we're going to start seeing locals leave here because the prices are not going to get to where people think. And that's a great move. I, I really do. I mean, uh, our renters, our, our local workers, our hospitality, especially because, you know, Miami's built on hospitality, they're getting priced out of – they used to live on the beach. You know, they used to live in Wynwood. They used to live in Alapata, and now they're out to Doral. And Doral is now becoming this – unaffordable place for renters so i completely agree with you you know north and west as much as you can and south to homestead and the keys even yeah. and but the keys you know that becomes a different story with everything but you know I, th I think you're right on hit the nail right on the head like we have to reach out as agents for our renters to find different areas for them to live yeah and then the bright line and other forms of transportation in here it's going to be like living you know, in a, in a borough outside Manhattan and taking an hour, 20-minute train ride to get in. I mean, It's the biggest city in the world, you know, in the, in, at least in the United States, and that's what you have to do to find affordability. And just because Miami doesn't have the infrastructure that New York does, i.e. Uh, the you know, public transport, it, it doesn't mean that it's not going to eventually happen. And like you said, the Bright Line, it's, it's expanding. It, it, it's uh, definitely something that people are using more. I would like to see some things go west, you know, maybe a track that they build west, just because that we're going to start seeing people that are coming in from West End and, and all those west um, neighborhoods more and more. Yeah. So I guess to close up the whole market update, I don't think it's going to be as bad as a year as people suspect it's going to be. I think Miami prices are going to hold. But I think it's a very interesting year. I think there'll be some sort of reckoning here, either – our locals are going to get out, you know, or prices at the very least might level off. I don't think they're going to go down, but maybe some sort of level off and then maybe the normal 3 to 5% appreciation year over year. Uh, listen, I agree with you completely. I think we're going to reach a plateau year. I think this is going to be where everybody's like, okay, we're waiting for it to drop and it's not going to. It's just going to stay. This is the new normal. Unless interest rates drop drastically, prices are going to... Oh, but that, that always changes everything, you know, but we don't know what the Fed's going to do at this point. Okay. So we're moving on from the market to uh, an article that The Real Deal had published, and it was, says, Inside South Florida's Branded Condo Tower Boom. Yeah. I found this to be fascinating because, you know, my stepfather was a developer. He was partners with George Perez. I respect the developer game yep. a lot. But I also think they're, they're the wealthiest men in our town, and they are the ones who create, the, like, they drive our real estate industry. 100%. And what they have been able to do, if you go back to before the Great Recession, these condos were, were basically air, pieces of paper, things that we put together yep. to draw attention, to get people from South America to come park money and get money out of their, their countries where, things, where they were in trouble right. and then put them into these buildings. And since then to now, and what they're saying in this article is how lucrative it is to sell a branded condo tower. And I thought about branded condo towers. And I remember specifically when the Faina house was being built that Baz Luhrmann got signed on to be a creative right. director for Faina. And I'm like, Baz Luhrmann? A, a, a movie director? <laughs> like, they, they'll just create whatever they can. And, right. and God bless them for being creative. Sure. You know, but... Listen, think about it. The best brands in the world start off as kind of a co-brand, right? You know, why not... These guys are sitting back, right? They're businessmen. They're trying to drive desire drive demand why not attach a sexy name like austin martin porsche 
and all um, Mikochina and, and, and Mr. C, and, and you attach it to these projects, and you're like, okay, this is something that people find attractive. You know, it's, it's, it's almost marketing 101, but on a, a whole different scale. This article said that the Ritz-Carlton has never not sold out a building. It's, which is insane. When I read but, the article, I was like, there's no true. way. But it's true. When you think I about know. Ritz-Carlton, it's like you, you know what you're going to get. And I, I, I totally understand. But, you know, it's, it was just I, – I, I think it's interesting because the developers drive our real estate market here and the condo market is going to have, I think – a little bit of a slowdown, and there's 24 condo towers that are going up. I know. I don't think it's going to be 2008 where we're going to have all that inventory. But you know, you and I have talked a million times about what's changed in the developer game. One, the buyer profile is no longer the South American parking money. It's yep. an educated buyer. It's a buyer who wants the what's nicer the things in life. They want the best. They're gonna get the best buildings, but they're not gonna get the best locations. Doesn't it feel though like St. Regis is like building five or six buildings out of the twenty-four? Oh, you know, yeah. oh, St. Regis Brickle, St. Regis Sunny Isles, St. Regis Bell Harbor. But that just shows you if they're willing to put the money behind it, that must mean there is demand, and so that shows that the consumer is that's like something that they want. And we were talking, like you just said, they want full-service buildings. They want to feel like they're in a hotel but like Four Seasons type of hotel. So St. Regis and, and Ritz-Carlton. So that's why it makes so, so much sense. So you're living in a community uh, where you have amenities on amenities on amenities and services on services, but they're willing to pay a premium for it, so it's, it's actually nice to see. But I think what's going to happen for us when we start selling condos, we're no longer going to be able to sell the best views because – the best buildings are not sitting where the best views are. Those buildings are shit. Well, we've talked about this. It was a waterfront versus water view. Right. And I think that's something that we talked about on the last two podcasts. Is It's the truth because Miami, the coastline, and Fort Lauderdale even go up into West Palm Beach. The coastline is sold out. Like You're not going to find any other place on the coastline for a reasonable price and that people are going to spend this type of money for. Um, so you're, you're, you're going to have to come two and three and four blocks back. Um, but that's but that's good though because that just shows like we, we have the demand that take up all the space um, and people are still willing to pay for these water views you know and for the two or three blocks back um, so I, I think that's still impressive and I always keep going back when we talk about the water view versus waterfront it always just shows man there's people that want to be here oh they're they're counting on it <laughs> I, I know they are but that, that just shows you like everybody who's saying oh Miami Miami no Miami's a micro market. It, Always has been, and it's even so even so more now. Yeah, but it's the way that San Francisco is for the ultra-privileged, if you want to call it that, for lack of a better term. People with money, with great wealth. Miami has been doing that, and I think it's going to continue in a really aggressive way because all the product that's going to be available is going to be for those with you know who can afford these, right. these condo prices. And it's not just the condo prices because now what happened with Surfside is all of these buildings have to do 50-year inspections right. yeah. or 50-year certifications. The maintenance fees are going up. I was looking at condos for a client. I, I was hard-pressed to find any reasonable condo that did not have maintenance fees of over $1,000 or close to it. Oh, no. I'm dealing with a client right now. Same thing. If it has no reserves, they're not buying the building. If there's like not a substantial amount of reserves, they're not buying the building. If they don't have the 40-year certification on these older buildings, they're not going to buy it. So I think that is something that Surfside really did make a change You know, because it's gonna, assessments are coming. Yeah. So a lot of these older buildings, a lot of hidden costs are coming to these buildings. So, uh, I mean, I think it's really important, and it's good to see you know these, these new projects come in, and people are like, okay, I don't have to worry about any of that for X amount of years. That's fantastic, and that's also a driving force. Yeah, I hear you, and that's great for the ultra-rich, but anyone like you know who is on some sort of more of a fixed type of income when they're living in some of these buildings, because all, all the, the, the maintenance fees 
are going up and every single building is going through an assessment, man. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely hurting uh, the less fortunate. It, yeah. it, it, just to say it with a, without yeah. anything, it, it really is because it's – and it's just what we were talking about. It's the the workers and the, the hospitality guys and that are getting forced out of here. But then what are we going to do with those older buildings? You know, is it going to be like a Stephen Ross situation with the Deauville or is it going to be somebody – exactly they're... what's going to happen. Right. I'll tell you right now. And they're they're smarter than we are in right. terms of like their business. But if the money was there, they would buy up every single one of those old buildings on Miami Beach, from the Fountain Blue all the way up to uh, Ball Harbor. I think it's gonna happen. All of them. Well, of course. And by the way, if they ever allow gambling oh. in Miami Beach, yeah. it's game over. Yeah. Oh yeah. They would never put a. I don't think they'd ever put a, a real casino in Miami Beach. I think it would have to be off the beach. Oh, think about the traffic. I don't. I don't even want to think about it. Actually, that's what would be a nightmare. But I, I agree. Eventually, the play is for these developers. Still, hold off. Okay, just look at look at the Doville. It took like what four, five, six, seven years for it to fall into disrepair. And Stephen Ross is like, okay, here I come. I know that deal is kind of like up in the air. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying, like that type of play, and we're seeing it on you know South Beach. You know, like where everybody's like, oh, we're gonna close the clubs at two a.m. and then they're not gonna be able to make money. And then oh, we're gonna come in and buy it. You know, like come on. We see what's going on. A lot of, well, a lot of people do. And, um, you know, I, it's, it sucks. It really does because we're losing that art deco oh my and God. The, every, the, like the, the heartbeat of Miami Beach. Miami was a retirement community. I know. I know. It's crazy to think in about. In the 80s. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Um, you mentioned Steve Ross, so I'm going to transition there. Yep. I'm sure you saw the news that the related bosses have split. Yep. You know, I'm going to – I know the Perez family personally. They're, they're to, to me, good people. I think they have the right intentions. And if – you know, someone's on the wrong end of a business deal. I get it. Yep. But I got to tell you something. There's something about Steve Ross. I don't know him. And if you do, then defend him. But he, his wife is divorcing him at 80 years old. By the way, she looks like a hell of a lady. She looks super nice. She's very active on Instagram. He loses his business partner from I don't know how many years. And, and, and he gets roped with the Dolphins. On, like, he just seems like some shady asshole, man. I don't know him. but like... I don't know him, so I can't <laughs> speak for him, but I totally agree. You know, like, to get to where that guy is, you know there's something going on. You know, like, he has his fingers in everything, it feels like, in Miami and, and in Fort Lauderdale and even in New York. You know, like, the Hudson oh, Yards yeah. thing and everything that he did. Which, by the way, Hudson Yards is incredible. Yeah, it's a very cool spot. And, and I heard there was, you know, that he wanted to do something like that down here and it fell through. But, like, I, you know... Again, it's hard to get there without being a little bit shady. I'm not saying that it's right, but that's what he's done. And by the way, the things that he has done down here haven't been horrible for the city. You know, there have been some things that we've disagreed uh, that we've agreed upon that we disagreed with Ross with. But like, I mean, the, the sports facility and the F1 facility and everything that that is cool. That is really awesome. Sure, he still seems like an asshole to me. <laughs> um, I'm gonna skip Keller Williams. Okay. Okay. Losers. Yeah. So. Okay, we'll start off with Coconut Grove and The Hollywood Reporter. Okay, this goes into everything we've been talking about. Who's reading The Hollywood Reporter? Probably most people in California, Yeah. right? Yep. Uh, people of high net worth, and it's just this glowing article. Like, it's random. It's like The Hollywood Reporter, and they're talking about why Coconut Grove is Miami's hottest neighborhood of the moment, and they're talking nationally. And that's kind of like what's been happening. People want to be in Florida first, then Miami, and then when they get here, it's the beach or the grove. It's amazing to see. Like I said, I, I have like two or three customers and clients that right now, they say, I don't care, Anthony. I want to be in the grove. I'll wait however long I have to be, however long I have to wait until my school, my kids get into St. Stephen's or wherever. I'm waiting because I want to be in the grove. And 
we were talking about it today at lunch with uh, Amy Heron, who's my partner, and she. It's like it's amazing to see what's going on here. You know, you, you, you can, the walkability is through the roof. Uh, the amount of commercial dollars that are coming here is through the roof. We're seeing uh, two Michelin star restaurants here, and I know that's something that you had talked about earlier, and we had talked about Ariette and um, Los Felix. I mean, just think about that. Uh, five years ago, you would have never been like, oh, this is going to be a place where Michelin star restaurants are. Um, and they're still popping up every day. And it's just such a refreshing thing uh, to see this little village, this little fishing village become like the hot spot of Miami. Yeah. No, it's pretty wild. I mean, because it, in the article, it states that we used to have like Cheesecake Factory and Fat Tuesdays. <laughs> yeah. And now we have like refined dining and we've got like cool lounges and things. And it's just. Yeah, uh, you remember when Coco Walk was like Cheesecake Factory, yeah. Chili's. Baja uh, Beach Club, Baja Beach Club, Dan Marino's, yeah. you know, like, and that, and then it became like Duffy Sports Bar, and then all of a sudden it's like uh, Keystone Club. We have Sweet Green, and, and and you know these national market things, and then we have like these local Mister um, Visa One Hundred and One. You know, like I think it's just such a an amazing thing that's. Did happening. you ever see the episode of Bar Rescue where Bob? <laughs> I, I think did. his name is Bob Tafford. Is that his name? I think so. He yeah. goes in and he tries to redo uh, Sandbar, and in that episode he says. The economics here don't work for this shit bar. Yeah. You need to have a high-end restaurant. Now, he obviously doesn't know Miami and knows the history he didn't of those know the bars. Girl at all. But he was – the research was showing that there was a market for these kind of things. Now, I think his concept sucked, and Sambar, you know, they didn't want to cooperate. But, like, he kind of, like, was seeing the numbers. And I guess if you study what's happening in the Grove, our median price point for homes went from 1.2 to 2.6 I know. in the last 18 months. Wild. So everyone here, they've got money, and that's why you're seeing like the Amals of the world and Bellinis, and we're spending $30 on a cocktail. And, yeah. You know, well, that. they always say in like developing neighborhoods, follow the commercial money. And, and, and if you actually go back and you see when the commercial money started flowing in here, that was the growth of Coconut Grove. Did the, the COVID in 2019 and 2020 explode it? Yes. But for sure, it was on the trajectory already, and where it is right now and where it's going has been uh, something exciting for sure. Yeah, so more Coconut Grove news. I sent this to you. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Metronomic and this guy, Ricky Trinidad. So I, ha I, I only know the name Metronomic and Ricky Trinidad. I don't know much behind him. So my dad introduces me to Ricky Trinidad right around the time I got my license, sure. about eight years ago. And he's like, no, this guy, he's sharp, he's an urban planner, whatever. I meet the guy, and I'm like, this guy is not like all put together, or it's just whatever. And we were at the old brokerage, and we we're trying to work out a deal to do a mini development. And he was like strong arming for every single piece of commission he wanted. No, I want from the seller and the buyer. I've got my license. He's also the developer, so he's making money as a developer, trying to make money on sales on both sides. And it was just like ugly. So it never worked out. He ended up coming back, and they did some deals with him, and then he ended up purchasing the lot next to Green Street. He purchased the 12 spots that were for sale on the Grand Avenue. Yeah. Basically putting his flag in Coconut Grove. Like saying, here, here I come. Here I come. So as, and I, I mean, obviously I sound like a hater, but I'm like, wow, we've been looking at all this dead land forever. Ever. And you're going to be the guy? Yeah. You're going to be the guy to do this? And he's got basically the future of the Grove in his hand and this fuckstick can't figure out how to keep it together. I don't know what happened. I just know because of how greedy he was at one time. I'm like, oh, his personality and the way he was with business must have driven because they're about to foreclose on Grove House. That's like their 15th property that they foreclose on. I know. So I think this is the classic story of uh, growing too thin, right? You're growing, you're growing large and you're growing huge and you're like this new name, but you're, you're an inch thin. 
you know, so you're really skinny and you're so you're not get, putting your roots into places. So, yeah, when I read the article, I was like, man, he lost 17 properties to, to a foreclosure and then two in Chicago because I guess he had his fingers in Chicago as well. Oh, yeah. So it, it's like it's, it's really crazy to see. So it just shows that, like, you know, the idea was there. Right. The ambition was there. But like the um, the execution wasn't. And, you know. We always like to see the little fish survive. We like to see like that it's not related, and it's not everybody here in the Grove that's building now. Um, you know, it, it, it's a sad story, but you know, it just shows that you know there are you know risks to this game for sure. But I tell you, I'm dying to know because I think when we were little, we always wondered what the hell is with all this yep. land here that's just like not developed, not used. I mean, some of those. I mean, I guess I don't think they were ever projects, but they were beat up buildings that had now they've been boarded up for at least eight years oh forever you know and that's like the last piece of coconut growth i'm excited like, i, I want to know what's going to happen with that like i know it's been fenced off for how long what four or five years at least all of it all well, i think i think it was fenced off when he bought and now as yeah. it's in bank but whoever buys that kind of controls the future of that area because obviously they have the the co the coconut grove west grove townhouse market right but on the other side, those are all single-family homes by the cemetery. Right, I know. And all those homes, once they start a development plan there... Oh, of course. It's going to... Yeah, you're not going to be able to buy those for sure for a reasonable price. It's going to all be new construction homes, yeah. you know. Well, just think about what we're seeing in West Grove already with all the white boxes and everything that's going on and the price crazy increases that are in West Grove. Wait till that development plan is set in stone and it's voted on and it's approved. I mean, it's just going to show one more hike, one more big hike in that area in West Grove and it, it, it it's actually kind of mind-boggling so it, it, it's weird to see like what's going to happen with that section of, of, of West Grove and um, you know we always like to see development but we hate to see lose history that's what we've always talked about when it goes back to the Coconut Grove um, not Convention Center the, the Playhouse. Playhouse you know you just you want to make sure they preserve a little bit of the history that built the city that we work in you know they could do a mandate to just build the homes in a certain style that resembles, I mean, I know they're gonna, it's gonna be tough to do, but they did it in the gables for so long. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I'm not an urban planner. Same. And I just, you know. I don't know how you do it. You know, that I'm, it's above my pay grade, but yeah. like, I, I know what you're saying, you know, with the whole villa style of Core of Gables and how it was kind of like that Italian, like they were forcing people in a certain direction. Um, I, you know, I hope Coconut Grove doesn't go in that way, to be honest, because I think the the contrast between like a Grove Love Shack and like a little villa and, and the white box is something that I actually like. I know a lot of the locals don't like the white box, but I, actually I heard a client call it a sugar cube, cube recently, which I, I really loved. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let, let's see what happens. Yeah, I mean, and I'm also still down for some sort of affordable housing. I know they've got one of those projects on Grand Avenue. We could use a little bit more of it just to, you know, let's let's keep it fair for for everyone um but yeah so metronomic r.i.p in miami pretty much yep so um we're gonna finish up with two more topics and we'll get out of here it's been about 25 minutes all right so the florida panthers revealed a vamos gatos jersey which you told me about on sunday and it turns out it's a practice jersey so this was designed by a puerto rican artist named carlos solano and basically it's a homage to all things Florida Panthers and Miami, it is probably by far a top five jersey in the history of Miami sports. 100%. This should not just be a practice jersey. Florida Panthers, if you're <laughs> listening, this needs to be a special night. Spanish Heritage Month, I think, is coming up. Los Heat and Los Gatos. I mean, Vamos Gatos. That would be amazing, like, collaboration. 
I mean, this thing has everything. Dominoes, spices, lemons and limes. Dominoes, cafecito. And the year of the rat has a little rat underneath it. I mean, it is. if you haven't seen this, please Google it. Vamos Gatos, Florida Panthers jersey. I am definitely buying one. I'm not a hockey fan, but I am definitely rocking I, it. I don't think... You're gonna find one. I'm gonna find one. I don't care. I'm gonna oh. find one on eBay. I'm gonna find. I'm gonna go to the Panther Stadium and I beg for one from a player. Yeah, like let's go. The demand, I'm sure, is gonna be there to make more reproduce it. Um, so we're hitting the end of the podcast. So you know what restaurant I'm gonna review. So I'm gonna have you say yours first if you've got one. I've got. Okay, so mine's not more of a, a review. And by it's the more way, of like I want to talk about Scratch, but I'm not going to until you until you go. Okay, so I have then I have two topics. I went from three to two topics on the food <laughs> thing. All right, because I was going to talk about Scratch. I'm going on Thursday. I can't we'll wait. Go, once you go on Thursday, we'll we'll make sure we we cut we'll, it up on that. Okay, so uh, Massimo Batura is coming to Miami. This guy is a three star Michelin chef from Italy. He has the most one of the most famous restaurants in the world in Modena. It's called Oster, Ostiera Francescana. And it is literally like on all the TV shows. Wow. It's coming to downtown. Okay, so it's not going to be the same concept because his, that is like high-end, um, like molecular gastronomy a little bit with Italian food. Um, and by the way, I've had two people that have gone there. But okay. just, just saying, it still is known as one of the best restaurants in the world. Um, they're opening a place in downtown. Obviously, that's amazing. But where in downtown? It, it does. It has undisclosed location yet. Downtown's interesting. I know it is, but if you think about it, you have Novikov, uh, you have Il Gabbiano. You know, you still have some nice restaurants downtown. So, like, you know, I bet you by downtown, it probably means downtown Brickle. You okay. know, like a little slash. Um, <clears throat> but the fact that a three-star Michelin chef from Italy is bringing his restaurant to Miami, he has one in New York, and he's bringing that concept down. I think is an amazing, cool thing. And I only want to talk about one other thing, and it's just a, one singular dish. I, I brought this up to you on Sunday, and we talk about Luca quite a much here, uh, quite a lot here. And let me tell you, if you have a chance to get the pasta special that's going on this month right now, it's a squid ink bucatini with clams and breadcrumbs. And I don't even know what the fuck that sauce was, but it's sex. <laughs> I'm telling you, people, it is sex. Get to Luca right now. Sit at the bar, have a martini. And order the Squid Ink Bucatini special. It is amazing. You know I'm on a diet, right? So now I'm gonna have to go and try. No, it. no, no. Yeah, I, fuck diets. You, you, this is <laughs> this is w the one meal your cheat meal. Whenever you have your cheat meal, this is the one. Okay. Well, I love Luca. I'm happy to try something new there. But I have to talk about this restaurant because I'm not the biggest fan. I like some of the other concepts, and I'm talking about Ariette. Now, it was on my list because I got the Michelin star. I had been for brunch a bunch of times. Was never a fan. The chef went to Columbus. I have every reason to love that place, and I never did. So I took my mom there for her birthday, and we tried pretty much everything on the menu. The menu is very condensed. He, 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 shr he shrunk it up, yep. and I have to tell you, the food was incredible. It was one of my best dining experiences in Miami in the last couple years. The quality of the food was so elevated. It was so highbrow, but served, and, and that place is not highbrow. That right, place is no, very like coconut grove. Very cool bar, you know, like a outside seating, you know, like. Dude, it was incredible. Everyone loved their dishes. The duck press was phenomenal. And then, like, the guy who made the duck press in front of our table, the whole show. Now, don't get me wrong. It was expensive. But it was one of those types of expensive where it's like, oh, wow, the quality was just, it was there. So, it, it didn't matter because I, I was getting what I paid for. I think that's something that sets a normal restaurant, a really good restaurant, a really fantastic restaurant from Michelin Star, right? At the end of the day, it's the quality of ingredient and the execution of it. Uh, the concepts are always there, 
right? These smart chefs, I mean, I mean, they're trying all day in the kitchen, but I think the execution and the quality of ingredients really makes a difference. And we, we, we spoke about Ariette at length privately multiple times, how much, eh, you know, it's okay. And, and it was really good for a while, and then it kind of fell down a little bit, and then the brunch. Well, I think he was trying to figure it out. And, I th- and, and someone, someone had told me, a PR person told me, the mission started things happening here, and he, that's his goal. And, and it shows in the food leading up to him getting the Michelin star, by the way, because it kind of came like, oh, he's taking it to like the next level. This isn't like, oh, I'm going to go have a breakfast sandwich there for brunch. No, no. This is like, like yeah. you said, the duck press. Like who, you know, like I know they used to have the short rib pastrami that was so good. And then they brought it back like right before, yeah. you know, so like you could tell that it was something that was calculated. Um, and I couldn't be happier for them. It's a local place. You know, like you said, Columbus grad and, and that's amazing. So you know, kudos to them for like turning around, finding their ad- identity. I think yeah. they were kind of like searching for it a little bit, right? Yeah. So now that they have their star, I think they can kind of play with it a little bit because this is going to give him the freedom and the uh, the popularity to kind of like, okay, I'm gonna try this one. I'm gonna try this the next night, and and, and obviously it, it creates opportunity for him. Yeah, and and he's taken over the Grove, man. I mean. I, I don't like what they're doing with the menu at Chugs, but it looks like they're doing an experimental thing there as well. Yep. But he's due to open up a French restaurant in Cocoa Walk, and then I heard a sports bar across the street from Barracudas. Oh, yeah, wow, that's what I heard. So I mean, he's trying, and he's in our backyard. I hope that they don't put Barracuda out of business, by the way, because it's one of my I favorite think, bars. I think they're going to continue to collab, man. I think that they okay, all good. get along there. All right, I'm just making sure because yeah. I like two sports bars across. I know it's a dive concept, and whatever he comes with, that's awesome. But like, listen, Barracuda, stay strong. Okay, well, unless you have anything to close this out with, then um, I'll call it a wrap, right? All right, yep. well, dude, thank you very much. Always appreciate having you on the show, and we'll be back in a couple weeks, and thanks again for passing by my block. Later, guys.